The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. What a great word from Sandy. You, you might be new here and not know who that lady that was on the screen is. Her name is Sandy Cunningham. And uh, we at my house call her the nicest person in the world. Sandy is just this amazing woman of God. She is married to Danny, our executive pastor. And together they have been serving Christ at Temple Bible Church for many, many years. And so the reason that she was sharing is because we are in the middle of a, a series. You might could guess the name of the series is called The New Chapter. And this summer, each week, we've asked pastor's wives, pastor spouses, uh, elders' wives, elders, some of our staff, what's your favorite chapter in the Bible and why? And we're just walking through some of those chapters this summer, and today we're in Exodus 12. Last week, we're in Psalm 25, where, where there's this kind of individual lament for salvation. In Exodus 12, is a picture of God's response to this communal cry for deliverance from his people. And Exodus is a a book about deliverance, but it's also a book about the nature and the character of God. It's kind of bookended, if you will, in Exodus 3 and in Exodus 34 with a couple of statements about God's character. When God came to Moses... He described himself as the self-existent God. He said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. And God told him, you're gonna be the deliverer for my people Israel. And Moses was scared. He says, who do I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. I am who I am. Say this, I am has sent me to you. Well, Moses was afraid initially. He hid his face. He began to see God work throughout his life. And toward the end of his life, he asked God, can I see your face? And God says, no, no one can see the face of God and live, but I'll let my goodness pass before you. And the Lord descended by Moses in a cloud, Exodus 34, five through seven. And the Lord proclaimed his name or his character, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. He's this God who's kind and compassionate and holy and just. As I talked to Sandy this week about this God described in Exodus 12, the God of the Passover. She just said one of the things that's mentioned, really, she felt like in this is this essence of faith is just trusting God, resting in the fact that he is who he says he is. When he says, you tell them I am, there's this I am who I say that I am. It's this, this truth that there's nothing we can do to be strong enough or to earn our salvation because God accomplishes for us what we can't accomplish for ourselves just like he did for Israel. So let's read the first several verses of Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month 
shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. The lamb should be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentils of the house in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted with fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head, its legs, its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. Your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat in haste. It's to the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you in the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I'll pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the truth of this passage when you delivered your people from Egypt, but we also thank you for what it points forward to, that the blood of the lamb sprinkled not on doorposts but on our hearts has made us clean. You have delivered us from our enemy. You have delivered us from sin and death, and we will not see your wrath because of your crucified and risen Savior. We're grateful, God, and so as we read, let us read through the lens of the resurrected Jesus. And let us be shaped by what we learn today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Passover's a big deal in the life of Israel. God says this is gonna be the first month of your year. They've been enslaved for 430 years, so a new nation is really, in essence, being born, and this is gonna be the first month. Can you imagine God comes to him? It's, it's there, they're in Egypt, it's hot, it's humid, maybe a little bit hotter than normal. It's almost like you can feel it if you stop for a second. And God says to Moses, this is gonna be a beginning, the year's gonna begin with deliverance for you. And you're gonna remember it every year through all generations. And here's what we're gonna see in Exodus 12 as we look at the Passover. We're gonna see that God's promises are sure, that God's power is supreme. We're gonna see that God's people are people set free. And we're gonna see that this Passover, it happened, but it's also a symbol. Well, we're gonna start with God's promises are sure, but to do that, we need to turn back to Genesis chapter 15. You can turn with me if you'd like, or you can Listen, this is the fulfilling of a promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 15, about 13. In Genesis 15, God says to Abram, you're gonna be Abraham. He says to this Abraham, listen, I'm gonna be your shield and your exceeding great reward. Abraham's an old man. He, he doesn't have any kids. He's too old for his wife to have kids. And God 
says you're going to have an offspring. It's going to be your offspring, not the offspring of your servant. It's going to be yours this time next year. Abraham doesn't believe it. Sarah, his wife, doesn't believe it. And God says, go outside and count the stars, verse 5. Look to heaven, number the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. God makes a promise, and it's a promise of stars. Your offspring are going to be plentiful. But, but a couple of generations later, Abraham's offspring, it's, it's, actually, it's actually just 70 people, and they go into Egypt. They go into Egypt. Well, God tells Abraham that's going to happen. If you look in Genesis 15, 12, it says the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. So it's a promise of sojourning. He said, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. But just as, as Abraham is, or Abram is hearing this, God says, also, you're going to sojourn. You're going to sojourn and where your people go and sojourn, all these all these stars, all these offspring, they're going to sojourn and they're going to be servants. I'm going to send you into affliction. I'm going to send your people into affliction and they're going to be servants. They'll be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I'll bring judgment on the nation they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. There's this promise of salvation and God's promises are sure. What we are seeing that's about to happen in Exodus 12 is coming about. Exodus 1, 7, God's people had multiplied. They'd been fruitful and they'd multiplied. There were too many of them. Pharaoh was concerned. So he began to press down harder and harder and harder on them. And God's going to bring salvation to his people, just like he promised Abram. There's going to be judgment on the serpent king. The plagues that have come to Egypt thus far have been plagues that are judgment on their false gods, showing God's power. So God gives these very peculiar and particular instructions. Take a lamb. It has to be a male lamb. It has to be without blemish. It can be from sheep or goats. It's got to be a year old. Don't eat it raw. Don't boil it. Roast it. You're going to take unleavened bread. There's going to be herbs with it. There's these particular instructions because God is reminding his people of the story. In Genesis 3, a serpent king had come and deceived and attacked and animal skins were sac or animals were sacrificed. Their skins made a covering now now a lamb and the lamb's blood is going to make a covering for the people. They're going to be protected. Judgment will pass over. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years down the road, a lamb will come who's the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. God's promises are sure. We can trust that he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he's going to do. His promises are, are sure because his power is supreme. See, one who promises, there are two things you have to know. Does the person have integrity? It's impossible for God to lie. And then, is the person strong enough? Is the person strong enough? Ken, if you were scared of something, my friend Kim McCray is here, not scared of anything, but if you were scared of something, and I said, 
Ken, I'll protect you. You don't have to be afraid. I could promise it and I could mean it, right? But your response would be, well, you're 5'9 and fluffy, Chase. You got nothing to help me, right? But God, God's power is supreme. So when God promises, we can know his promise is sure because of his character, but also because of his power. Israel has seen, Israel's going to see the gods of the nations cannot compare to him. So when God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, I will strike all the firstborn, both man and beast on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment for I am the Lord. The gods of Egypt The gods of the nations then, the gods of the nations now, they cannot compete with the one true living God because they are no gods at all. And this story gets told over and over and over. When we talked about this in our Abraham series, we talked about Pharaoh, this serpent king, literally his headdress had a a cobra-looking serpent on it. This is what the pharaohs would be mummified in. This would be headdresses that they would be seen in. And God is going to strike down the serpent. He is going to crush the serpent's head. He made this promise in Genesis Three. By, by the way, great talk on this. Jen Wilkin gave it. The Gospel Coalition Women's Conference. You can Google where she dives into uh, to Pharaoh, the serpent king. And it's a metaphor, but it's also this reality. God has and God will have judgment over the serpent. In Genesis 3, he's going to be the head crusher. The offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. We see it played out in the life of Israel. This serpent king in the Exodus is going to be crushed. Well, there's another ultimate serpent that will eventually be crushed because God's power is supreme. John describes in Revelation 20, one through three, and in verses nine and 10, he says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain And he sees the dragon. Who's the dragon? That ancient serpent of old who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur and where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever because God's power is supreme. The one who accuses us, the one who would deceive us, the one who would whisper lies to us that God does not love us and cannot keep us. He, the one who wreaks havoc on the earth, who brings wickedness into cultures, he will be destroyed forever and ever because God's promise is sure. God's power is supreme. He rules over all. We talked about this at my house last Sunday. My boys came home from church, my two little guys. I said, did you guys learn anything in Launchpad today? I never ask, what do you learn? Because they'll say, I don't know. If I ask, did you learn anything? They say, yes. And then I say, what did you learn, right? And they said, we, we learned a really big word about God. I said, you did? What word is it? And one of them said, it's omni-something. And I said, is it omnipotent? Yes, God is really, really strong. 
And we said, yes, he is really strong. He's more powerful than all. He's all powerful. His power is supreme. And so what is Israel to do? What are we to do? What do we do when the enemy is coming against us? Do we prepare for battle? Do we gather our swords and assemble our arms? No. It's this simple act of obedience. See, God doesn't show his power as supreme through us showing our power as supreme. Because if we could show our power as supreme, we wouldn't need a God who is supremely powerful. It is in our weakness, our need, that God shows himself strong. So God tells the people what to do. Pharaoh will not let you go. He will not let you go and worship, but I'm going to pronounce judgment on him. Well, why not raise up an army? There's 600,000 men. God tells him to do something different though. He says, take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They're gonna dip hyssop in the blood. Now there are two words that stuck out to me in Exodus 12. One was hyssop, which I had seen before six times in the Bible. It's always used for healing or cleansing. David says, cleanse me with hyssop so I will be clean. But then there's this word, lentil. It, it occurs three times in Exodus 12. And I, I do know what the word lentil, L-E-N-T-I-L means, right? Those are beans. That's what Isaac, or rather Esau, sold his birthright for. But I, I did not know the word lentil, L-I-N-T-E-L. In Deweyville, Texas, they thought we could only handle one type of lentil, right? So I thought, well, I, I need to find out what this word means. And I did. I, I looked it up, and it's this beautiful, beautiful thing. There's a reason that it's mentioned in Exodus 12, 7. And in Exodus 12, 22, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin, the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. I know you're going, Chase, what's a lintel? I'm gonna answer. See, a lintel was over the top of the door. And in ancient Egypt, and in particular in the Nile Delta and the northern marshlands near Goshen, right where the Israelites were enslaved for 400 years during this time, both poor Egyptians and the Israelites would have had mud houses, but the doorpost and the lintel was made of stone. Here's one from the time period that was excavated. And Egyptians would write in hieroglyphics, they would put the name of the family over the door and they believed that their gods would rescue them into eternal life because the name was on the door. And God says, put blood on the lintel and on the doorpost. See, those names that are covered in blood, I will pass over and I will not judge. There's this beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel. That name will not be judged. See, Israel, they could have looked and said, we're, we're stronger, our people are stronger than Egypt. Our God has had power over the gods of Egypt. But one day, hundreds of years later, Jesus is gonna say to his disciples, rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but that your names are written in the book of life. See, there's blood that's covering the name. And God's judgment passes 
over. Like his judgment passes over all of us who are in Christ. Well, Sandy and I talked about how simple this is, blood on the door. And she shared with me what she had read in her devotion that morning. Isn't there something more we should do? Isn't there something we should do? But it's what God does. Her devotion this morning from a, a pastor named Paul Tripp said, no, it's, it's not our power, it's his. We were formed to be dependent on the one who made us. We were recreated in Jesus Christ to be dependent on his grace. God does not hold you to a standard of independent strength because he does not expect of you what you do not have. He knows who you are. He is never shocked or dismayed by our weakness. He has moved toward us in grace because we are weak and we would have no hope of life and death without him. The the people who are shocked and dismayed by our weaknesses, that's us. We are shocked and dismayed by how weak we are. It bothers us, it embarrasses us. It makes us wanna hide ourselves. It causes us to play act in public and deceive ourselves in private. We'll drive ourselves crazy unless we understand the gospel of Jesus, the story of a strong savior who showers his powerful grace on his people who are fundamentally weak and unable. He confronts He confronts us with our weakness so that we run to him for strength. See, it's not a bad thing to come to the end of our rope if we find a strong and willing savior there. When we cry out in weakness, what we do is we teach our heart to esteem and celebrate the grace that makes us strong. Sometime today, sometime this week, you and I are all gonna be confronted with our own weaknesses. And when we are, we'll either work to convince ourselves that we're strong or we'll run to the one who is. See, God's gonna show his power is supreme to judge, but he's also the one who shows that his power is supreme to deliver. You've wrestled with this before when you've seen somebody and it looks like they're following Jesus really, really well and you go, I could never sacrifice like them. I could never do this like them. I'm not able, I'm not strong enough, correct. Are are you weak enough? It's not the strong who are set free. It's those who run to the one who is strong, Jesus. These are the ones who are set free. And that's what happens in Exodus 12. God's people are set free. See, God's people do just what Moses tells them to do. That's what Exodus tells us. They do just what Moses tells them to do. And in verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn in the livestock and Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants, all the Egyptians. There was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And all these houses, the Egyptians, can you imagine a wail through the night like you've never heard? If it wasn't in your house, if your house was covered in blood, there was a neighbor just down the way that there was screaming and weeping like you've never heard. Because God's judgment came 
and it will come again. So Pharaoh summoned Moses and says, up, go out from among my people, you and the people of Israel, go serve the Lord as you have said. In verse 32, it's such this strange statement from Pharaoh, take your flocks and your herds as you've said and be gone and bless me also. It's this one moment of weakness where Pharaoh kind of expresses need just a little bit. And the people went out. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. On this day, they are set free and God's going to split the sea to make sure that they are. And they're gonna be told, remember, remember. This is gonna be a statute forever. This is your first month every year. You remember this, you remember this, you remember this every year. See, sometimes we're told to remember because we don't want to forget the past. And sometimes we're told to remember so that we can trust what's coming. So over and over and over, they take the Passover. And in the Passover, every year, Decade after decade, century after century, the lamb is the star of the show. It was the blood of the lamb put on the doorpost that caused God's judgment to pass over. And then one day, a prophet out in the desert baptizing people is gonna say, look, there's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the night before he died, Jesus takes the Passover with his disciples and he talks about bread and wine, bread and wine, bread and wine. Where's the lamb? The lamb on the table doesn't matter so much as the lamb at the table. This is what Passover is pointing to. God's people are set free because God's Passover is a symbol. It's a symbol. It's a statute forever. It's a statute forever and no foreigner shall take of it, but foreigners do end up taking it. How does that work? Because God is gonna send his son. See, what's Passover pointing to? There are all kinds of things it might just be pointing to. I think it's not one, but many. In a number of ways, the Passover, Andrew Wilson says, is an obvious prelude to the work of Christ. It's about redemption from slavery by the blood of a lamb. It's about a sacrifice that passes through the fire and saves people from death when everyone around them is facing judgment. It's about power, the power of faith worked out through obedience. Israelite families were not saved by their personal godliness that night or even the amount of confidence they had in God. They were saved simply by the fact that blood was over their house. It's also a symbol of Purity, a spotless lamb, removal of leaven, hyssop for cleaning, suffering. They ate unleavened bread with bitter herbs to remember how they had suffered 400 years. It's a symbol of unity. Entire households eat together and an entire people will be delivered together. A mixed multitude of all who would come in, it's about a nation being born again. Well, wait, Chase, it says no 
foreigner can eat. How does this work? Every slave that is bought for money may eat if you have them circumcised. If they get the mark of my people, if they identify with my people, they can come in. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh out of the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and pass over to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native, but no uncircumcised person shall eat it. It's a symbol that God's people will be passed over. Exodus 12, 48 is this picture. Circumcision was the mark of identity of the people of God. My people will be passed over. See, the Passover reminds us God has a plan he will accomplish. Well, we know, Ephesians tells us he has this eternal purpose, a plan for the ages, a plan for the fullness of time. Well, we see here he had a plan for redemption from Egyptian bondage. He guided his people through the sea, through the desert by means of a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. J.I. Packer describes this. He had a plan for his people to return from Babylon. He had a plan for Cyrus to be on the throne. He would stir up his spirit. He had a plan, as we've just studied, for the Jews to build the wall and build the temple. He had a plan for Christ to come and do the will of God perfectly and suffer the painful and shameful death on the cross and rise from the dead. He had a plan for Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles and he has a plan for you and for me. And so Jesus said, here's how you're going to remember from now on. It's not blood on doorposts and blood on lintels, but there's a sign hanging that says King of the Jews and there's blood on it and the man below the sign is hanging on a cross. Does God save like the psalmist says with a mighty hand and outstretched arms? Yes, the outstretched arms of Jesus dying for you and for me. So we're going to remember Jesus together today. God, just as Jesus told the disciples, as Paul reminded the believers in Corinth, we stop to partake of the bread and the cup. And as we do, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf and we thank you, God, that your judgment has passed over all of us who are in Christ. That you are our deliverer, that we have been set free. We remember and we rejoice today. In Jesus' name, amen.